Our reading today is from Ezra chapter 4. Please feel free to uh, follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen behind me. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the beginning of Eshredon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counsellors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabil, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. Rehum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges and officials over the men from Tripolis, Persia, Erech, and Babylon, the Elamites of Susa, and the other people whom the great and honorable Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the land of Samaria and elsewhere in the trans-Euphrates. This is a copy of the letter they sent him. To, to King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the men of trans-Euphrates, the king should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if the city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid. The royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace, and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king, so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place of rebellion from ancient times. That is why the city was destroyed. We inform the king that if the city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. The king sent this reply. To Rahim, the commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of their associates, living in Samaria and elsewhere in trans-Euphrates, greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made, 
And it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole trans-Euphrates and taxes, tribute and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rahim and Shimshai the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Lee. Uh, do keep your Bibles open as we go through. I should say, ne- next week we'll pause our series in Ezra. We'll be doing a one-off for the, the baptism service, and then we'll return uh, to Ezra chapters 5 and 6 the week after. Uh, let's pray as we come and look at these words. Heavenly Father, it's a, a wonderful privilege that we have to uh, look back uh, at this account uh, of, of your people, and we pray as we do, Lord, that you would uh, work in our hearts, Lord. Help us to see um, that that opposition to the, the gospel uh, is not to be unexpected. Uh, help us to know how to respond rightly in the face of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I read a story the other day of a man who loved God and loved telling people about him. And he had a real gift for evangelism. He would often speak to people about Jesus and he would do it at every opportunity. He would do it at work and he'd even have some great uh, conversations with his colleagues, which is a a great thing and I'm sure many of us have have wrestled with that uh, in our own lives. Now one day his boss had a word to him and he he asked him not to evangelise during work hours as it was kind of taking him and, and his other Uh, colleagues as well, away from their actual work. Lunch times were fine, but just not during the work itself. But he kept doing it despite numerous warnings. And unfortunately, he ended up losing his job for it. This was a, uh, now this man was, was convinced that he had been persecuted for his faith. He had faced this opposition purely because he was a Christian. But when you think about it, he wasn't doing what he was paid to do. He wasn't being faithful in the work that he had been given, and he didn't really have a leg to stand on. Uh, We're looking at a chapter in the book of Ezra this morning that picks up on this theme of opposition to God's people. But unlike in the story I just mentioned, God's people seem to face opposition for doing the right thing. They do the right thing, and it costs them dearly. And we struggle with a passage like this, Because many of us don't like opposition. Some of us try and avoid conflict at all costs. So the thought of being in conflict with others because we follow Jesus scares us. And the cost of being faithful can scare us even more. This morning we see that opposition to the gospel is to be expected. 
that faithfulness to God, though it comes at a cost, is good. We heard last week that the rebuilding of the temple was underway, uh, the place where God dwelt among his people at that time. And the foundation of the temple had been laid, and it seems this news has come to the attention of of some of the neighbours of God's people. In chapter 4, the enemies of God's people come to the leaders of Judah and Benjamin, and they offer to help in the building of the temple. And it seems like a kind offer on first appearance, uh, first appearance, but Ezra calls these people as enemies. So we shouldn't think of this as a nice offer. We should be sceptical of it. What's behind it? What are they really after? It's interesting that these enemies are not named here. The only thing that gives us a clue as to who they might be is uh, in verse 2. The king they name, uh, Esarhaddon of Assyria, was said to be around in the 7th century BC. And he's mentioned in 2 Kings and in Isaiah as well. And Assyria was responsible for sending a number of people into exile, uh, a bit like had happened with uh, Judah. And it seems that these people were, were exiled, exiled around that time. 2 Kings 17.33 tells us that there were people like this who said they feared the Lord, but they also served their own gods. Other gods, they never turned away from these false gods. The God of the Bible calls on us to serve him alone. Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There is an exclusiveness there that, that God desires. Now there may be some truth to what these people say, but the fact that they're called enemies of God's people shows they aren't to be trusted. Now the leaders of Judah seem to be quite discerning in their response they reject the offer, but this doesn't go down well, and it becomes very clear that the enemies were never really interested in helping. Instead, they set out to discourage God's people and, and to put fear in them so that they would stop the rebuild. Uh, they, they show their true colours. There, there are some people in life who love to be involved in everything, who need to be involved. They need to have a say in everything. They need some sort of control. But if they don't get their way, their true colours come out. They won't rejoice when something good happens unless they're the ones behind it, unless they're involved in some way. But if they can't be involved, then they sabotage what's being done. It's good for us to be aware of, of that kind of attitude in our own hearts. If something good is happening in God's kingdom, but we can't rejoice because we're not involved, there's probably some repenting that needs to happen within us. So the leaders of God's people have clearly made the right decision in, in not involving these people in the rebuild. The decision they make is to remain faithful to God, not relying on these influential people for support. But this decision, as we've seen, comes at a cost. Faithfulness here brings this opposition. And the enemies discourage the Israelites through these counsellors. And perhaps these people were officials and, and this was some sort of bribe to stall the work. Uh, it seems like they know people or, or they've hired people with influence. Because I, I don't imagine it's an easy task to stop a rebuild that's been ordered by the most powerful king without knowing people in high places. It's also worth reiterating that, that this kind of opposition isn't, isn't a result of God's people doing the wrong thing. Nothing in the text suggests they've done wrong. Uh, we might think they should have accepted the help, the offer of help, but 
Who knows the damage that these enemies might have done if they were involved. They clearly have no loyalty to God, so, so we can trust that the people of God have made the right call. Now we get to the end of verse 5, and Ezra gets a wee bit sidetracked. Uh, some of us do that from time to time in conversations, don't we? we? We start over here talking about whatever it may be, but we end up somewhere we're down here with, with details. Uh, hopefully we do make it back to our, our point eventually. And, and thankfully Ezra does. Ezra tells us that there was opposition throughout Cyrus's reign and down to the reign of Darius as well. Darius was the king of Persia right after Cyrus. Now, now at this point, Ezra has opposition to God's people in his mind. So he tells us about more opposition. And verses 6 to 23, uh, in those verses, he points out various times uh, God's people faced opposition under the different Persian kings who came after Cyrus. He jumps across different dates, and it, it takes actually a bit of work to follow where he's going. In particular, he mentions three letters that are written. Uh, the first letter is there in verse 6. He mentions this guy, King Xerxes. Uh, people think this was the same Xerxes from the book of Esther, and he wasn't made king until around 40 years after Cyrus. Now, now during his reign, the opposition that came was an official accusation against the people of Judah. Uh, I'm calling it a letter because that's probably what an official complaint would have been back then. That's all he says on that. The second letter that's mentioned is in verse 7. The king who followed Xerxes was, was Artaxerxes. And Ezra mentions a letter is written to him by these guys, uh, I'm not going to say their names, and, and their associates. And again, that's all he says about it. Now, now the third letter is the one that's given all the airtime. It was written by two men named, I'm going to say it, Rehum and Shimshai and, and their associates. And this letter is also written to Artaxerxes, and we'll see it in, in verses 11 to 16. Now I should mention that by this time, the temple has been rebuilt already, and now God's people are, are focusing on restoring the rest of the city, and in particular, the walls of Jerusalem. And, and this crosses over with the book of Nehemiah, which is, which is about rebuilding the walls. Now let me point out a, a few key things they mention in the letter. Uh, verse 12 the king should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. Verse 13, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes or tribute or duty will be paid and the royal revenue will suffer. Verse 14, they, they point out their allegiance to the palace. It's not proper for us to see the king dishonored. We are sending this message to inform the king. Very noble of them. Uh, and they ask for a, a search to be made in these archives. The reason being that the archives will show that the city of Jerusalem was rebellious and, and troublesome and a place of rebellion since the ancient times. And that was why the city was destroyed. Now, now skipping ahead a little bit, if this city is built and these walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. No taxes, no tribute, nothing will be paid. Now, when I read that, my, my head tells me that this is obviously some sort of made-up claim by, by people who are opposed to God. There's no way that any of what they claim is true. A rebellious city, troublesome kings and, and provinces, surely not. But we see in verse 17 that the king replies, and verse 19 we see 
all of the accusations are true. It turns out that Israel's past is, is continuing to plague them. Even though they've paid for their past mistakes, that there continues to be a cost. In the king's mind, the same thing will happen again if, if left unchecked. So he calls for this work to be stopped immediately until further notice. And as soon as Rehim and Shimshai get the letter, they go straight to the Jews and they stop that work. They've got exactly what they wanted. And it says they even use force to make sure the work stopped. Uh, perhaps they used violence, uh, threatened them. Whatever they did, it was enough to get what they wanted. And we come to the, the final verse of the passage, verse 24. And in verse 24, Ezra, Ezra brings it all back. He's back talking about the temple again. And he's now talking about the reign of King Darius. Uh, it says, Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius, king of Persia. This is the final verse that, that picks up from verse 5. And it shows you that the work on the temple itself came to a standstill for about 15 years. 15 years of, of no progress. How would God's people not become discouraged at that? The enemies have got what they wanted. In this passage, Ezra makes a big deal about all the opposition that God's people faced. The king's mention cover almost 100 years of, of history of God's people. See, opposition wasn't just a, a one-off thing. It was constant. It was relentless. One setback after another. As Christians, one of our biggest stumbling blocks can be opposition to the gospel. Because we don't expect opposition as we should. Our world sets itself against God. The gospel is a message that claims that Jesus is the only answer to the troubles of the world. It claims that the problems that exist in the world are because people have turned away from God. So the message of the gospel is one that calls for repentance, turning from our sinful behaviors, behaviors that God shows us to be wrong, and finding forgiveness in, in Jesus. Some, some pretty exclusive claims. And it shouldn't be hard to see how it might rub some people the wrong way. This is a message that is offensive to many. Think of some of the implications of, of the message of the gospel. We're called to love our enemies, to, to forgive as we've been forgiven. Christians value life and, then, and therefore stand opposed to abortion, uh, euthanasia. We hold to a, a biblical view of marriage and, and gender and identity. It doesn't mean that as Christians we won't fail in any of these areas from time to time. Of course we will. Uh, it doesn't mean we won't struggle. But, but these beliefs are very much at odds with the world around us. Many people will take offense at the message of the gospel as it spreads. But it is a message that is true. That's why it's a message that has continued to bear fruit as God has caused it to bear fruit. But it's also a message that has been, that has been and will be strongly opposed by many people. There will be times when the work of God's kingdom faces significant setbacks, much to the delight of those who oppose it. There are some individuals who love nothing more than to see God's people discouraged by stopping their plans. Uh, we see it in, in uh, the lives of people overseas. We hear about it. In our own country, we, we've seen a, a push to 
uh, stop the Bible being being taught in schools. Uh, we've seen the proposed conversion therapy legislation that, that blatantly goes against God's desire to call people to repentance and change. We've seen in recent months a, a push to discredit the work of some of the larger churches in our country. Uh, I'm not for a minute defending any church uh, or any accusation that's that's been levelled against them. Uh, and some of the accusations are, are really devastating. But but I can't help but feel that there's also this desire to minimise the impacts of the gospel. In some of the reporting, there are people outraged that a church could be teaching a biblical view of marriage. People outraged that churches continue to function, and uh, thanks in a large part to volunteers. When you see one group advocating on, on behalf of another, it's good to bear in mind what's behind it. Now that's on a national scale, but, but you'll know of opposition to the gospel on a more personal level. You'll know of people who are prejudiced towards followers of Christ. Uh, some of you will have felt that prejudice personally in your workplaces or in your studies, even in friend circles or, or in families. Some of you will continue to face that sort of discrimination for following Christ. Ezra 4 shows us that the one thing we must do is expect this opposition. Know that we're in good company if people oppose us for our obedience to God. We see it here. We see it later in the life of Jesus. Think of all the opposition that he faced uh, when he came down to this world from those who he came to save. In John 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Remember, remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. We know this world opposed Jesus to the point of death. He faced that opposition for our sake, but that opposition was the path to his glory. The message of Ezra 4, do not be surprised by opposition. You are in the finest of company. There's another thing that this chapter shows us, and that is that faithfulness is the best response to opposition. The words of the leaders in, in verse 3 uh, are quite strong. And I think that's because they, they see the threat. They don't allow opposition to influence their decisions, that they act faithfully. When you face opposition for your faith, which, which you will do if you follow God, how does it influence you? Does it stop you being faithful to God? God's people show great courage in the face of their enemies here. They don't cave uh, and they trust that he will provide what they need. But he doesn't initially. That We've seen there were 15 years where, where nothing happened on the temple. More years in, in the book of Nehemiah where the enemy prospers. But as we'll see in coming weeks, God acts when the time is right. What does faithfulness in the face of opposition look like for you? It might mean persevering when, when you're mocked for following Jesus, for being narrow-minded. Uh, it might mean that people think you're hateful. 
it might mean a few funny looks and comments when, when people hear you can't go to that event or, or that training or rehearsal because meeting with the people of God is more important to you. It might mean enduring harsh words from family members when, when you share your desire to spend your life serving God in some way or, or ridicule from people because of your biblical views on, on sex or money or alcohol. I think we should read verse 3 as, as a positive. The, the people of God seriously considering how their decisions will impact their lives and the lives of others. Remaining loyal to God when an easier option might have been to rely on their powerful enemies. Now you'll notice that in the passage there's not really any resolution. It doesn't say God's people waited faithfully or, or God's people grumbled. It's a little bit vague at the end, isn't it? But, but I can't help but wonder how the people of God responded over those 15 years. How did they react to that opposition? 15 years of waiting on the Lord, followed by, by more waiting. We don't have to worry in that way when we face persecution for being faithful. We look to our Saviour Jesus and see that our future is secure in him. Whatever we're enduring, it will be worth it in the end. But more than that, we take comfort in knowing that he hasn't left us alone. He may have returned to heaven, but, but as we've heard, it's Pentecost Sunday today, uh, today, a day where we remember that we have God's Holy Spirit within us, comforting us, guiding us, making us more like Jesus, reminding us that any opposition we face in this life will pale in comparison to the glory that awaits us in heaven. Uh, so may we persevere faithfully until that day. Amen.